Open your Bible to James chapter 1. We're going to very quickly review verse 1, then we're going to jump right into verse 2. James chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. We saw in the previous service that this James is the half-brother of Jesus, and the reason we call him the half-brother of Jesus is because James and Jesus had the same mother, but they had different fathers. James' father was Joseph, of course, Jesus' father was God. But when you look at the New Testament, you find there are actually two brothers of, the, of Jesus who wrote books of the New Testament. James and Jude were both half-brothers of Jesus. And by the way, some people have asked when we're coming out with my New Testament interpretation, which is called the RIV, the Renner Interpretive Version, it's going to be out this fall. And the first two books to be released are going to be James and Jude. We're calling them the twin epistles because these were the two brothers of Jesus, and it is just jam-packed. Please keep your eyes out for it. But when you come to this verse, it says, James, a servant of God. That word servant, the Greek word dolos, there are several words for servant in the New Testament, but this is the most abject term for a slave. It describes one that is completely sold out, lock, stock, and barrel, who lives only to fulfill the desires of his master. And here James says he's the servant of God, and then he says, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word and in Greek is the word kai, which can also be translated who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And here from the lips of Jesus' own brother, James states that Jesus was not just a good man or a noble man, but in fact he was God, and that's why he clarifies a servant of God who is the Lord Jesus Christ, which means, my friends, Jesus is God. Can you say amen to that? Then he addresses his audience to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And I told the earlier service that the word scattered abroad is a translation of the word diasporia. The word diasporia describes the random scattering of seed. There were two ways primarily to plant seed in the first century. First, you would take a seed and plant one after the other in a nice, neat, orderly row. This was the most methodical way of planting seed. But then there was diasporia, and that's the word you have here, which describes a random or chaotic sowing of seed. When a farmer would put his hand into a satchel, and with no rhyme or reason, chaotically and randomly, he would just begin to throw seed all over the field. And that is the word which is used here to describe what has happened to the readers that James is writing to. These were Jewish believers who were literally uprooted from their homes due to persecution, which began in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9. And because of persecution, they were literally scattered all over the lands of the Eastern Roman Empire, particularly around the eastern lands of the Mediterranean Sea. And when they were scattered, it was so abrupt, they lost their homes, they lost their finances, they lost their possessions, and in fact, in many cases, they lost each other because the scattering was so quick, it was so abrupt, that people were scattered, they didn't even know where each other had been sent. They were fleeing for their lives because of persecution, which, by the way, was not a governmental persecution. It was a Jewish or a religious persecution. A governmental persecution did not begin until the year 64 during the rule of Nero. This was all religious persecution. But how many of you know religion can be really mean? It can be really mean, and this was really mean. And these believers were scattered in order to save their lives. And now they're really struggling. And they're writing letters to James because James is the chief elder of the church in Jerusalem. Well, you can imagine why he had that position. He was the half-brother of Jesus. Just being the half-brother of Jesus gave him notoriety that no one else had. In fact, in a certain sense, he had a greater notoriety than even later the Apostle Paul or Peter because he could claim that he was the half-brother of Jesus. So he's beginning to receive letters from people all over the eastern lands of the Roman Empire about the struggle that they're going through. And now he begins to address them and tell them how to use their faith to get through their struggles. And beginning in verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. But notice how he begins in verse 2. He says, my brethren. 
Now, if you were in the earlier service, forgive me, but I'm going to repeat this for the sake of those who were not in the first service. The word brethren is the Greek word adelphos. The word adelphos is from the word delphos, which describes the womb of a woman. But if you put an A on the front of it, it becomes adelphos. It describes two or more that are born out of the same womb. So in a certain sense, he says, you and me were all born out of the womb of God, and because of the blood of Jesus, we are related. However, by the time that you come to the first century when James was writing this letter, this word brother had become very popularized in the Greek-speaking world. At that time, the entire world was a Greek-speaking world. Due to Alexander the Great, this word brother had come to play a militaristic role, for example. Alexander the Great was viewed to be the greatest soldier in all of history and may still be the greatest soldier in all of history. And because of that, he was venerated and every soldier wanted some kind of connection with the legendary Alexander the Great. So from time to time, he would summon together hundreds and thousands of soldiers. They would build a big platform like this, but much bigger. And behind him was a flame, an eternal flame. And he would stand in front of the flame and one by one, he would call the names of soldiers that had really been through difficult times, but they had been faithful regardless of what they had been through. He would call them on stage, and while all the other soldiers watched in amazement, he would wrap his arm around those especially brave soldiers, would hug them tight, and would say, let all the empire know that Alexander the Great is proud to be the Adelphos the brother of this soldier, but it had a militaristic connotation which meant, this is my comrade. This is my comrade. So that by the time you come to the New Testament, nearly every time you see the word brother, it doesn't just refer to two or more that are born out of the womb of God, but it really is a military term which describes all of us as comrades in the army of the Lord. And in fact, a militaristic mindset was so prevalent in the New Testament that when you come to Romans chapter 16 and Paul greets the saints, he doesn't say, say hi to the saints that are in Rome. He says, salute the saints that are in Rome. They literally saw themselves as the kingdom of God, which was marching forward to take territory. And when they referred to each other as brothers, it wasn't just a nice slap on the back, but it was literally an acknowledgement. You are still in the battle. I'm proud of you. You may not have the victory yet, but I'm thrilled to be affiliated with anybody like you. And now James is writing to believers that are really struggling because they've lost so much. But rather than judge them for their struggle, which never helps anybody, rather than speak derogatorily to them, which we are never called to do, he uses this word brother to reach out and wrap his arms around them. And the first thing he says is, my brethren, it is the equivalent of saying, you may be struggling, but you're still in the trenches. You're still in the slugging it out. And I'm proud to be associated with people like you. My brethren, my fellow comrades. Now he hugs them with this word. And that's what we need to do for people that are struggling. Maybe they're struggling, but they're still fighting. They are worthy of our affiliation. And now he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, enjoy it when you fall into divers temptations. If you enjoy temptations, you need psychiatric help because there's nothing enjoyable about temptations. But in fact, when it says count it, it is actually a mathematical term. Now, Pastor Mark was trained as an accountant. So this, Pastor Mark, is a mathematical term. It means count it up and see what it equals, except in this particular case, it describes a predetermination. You're going to decide what it equals. You're going to decide what it equals. So you could translate, make a calculated decision, predetermine you're going to have joy even in diverse temptations. Now, there is a vast difference between happiness and joy. The Western world, please forgive me, I don't live in the United States and I'm not trying to be nitpicky, but even the United States is obsessed with happiness. Happiness is unobtainable because it comes and it goes. You might wake up happy, 
But when your wife looks at you wrong, you might suddenly be unhappy. You may be having a great morning and then you get a text and suddenly you are unhappy. Happiness is an emotion. And people who live in pursuit of happiness are never happy because it's fleeting. I understand that we're told in our legal documents in the United States that we're all born with the right of the pursuit of happiness. But let me tell you, it is an unobtainable pursuit. And rather than go for happiness, which comes and goes, we need to go for joy, which is permanent. And let me show you the difference between the two. Let's take the example of a body of water. Happiness is like the ripples on the top of water. If the day is calm, the water is calm. But a little breeze blows through and suddenly there's ripples on the top. Something else happens, there's more movement on the top. You can be peaceful, you can be unpeaceful, that's what happiness is. But in the bottom of every body of water, there is a current of water that moves consistently, that is strong and is unmoved by what's happening on the surface. And that's what joy is. Joy is a deep, deep running force in our life. And it is not based on external events. In fact, it is the word kara. It's a derivative of the Greek word charis, which is where we get the word grace, which means joy is grace given. It is grace given, and therefore joy is supernatural. It's not affected by exterior events. Regardless of what's going on in the surface of your life, you can dive deep into the flow of joy and be consistent regardless of what's going on in your life. And that's why it would be better for us to pursue joy than to pursue happiness. Can you say amen to that? I'm not against being happy, but I'm telling you, it comes and it goes. But joy is with you all the time. It's grace produced. It is in you all the time. If you'll just take the deep dive and go down into it. Then he says, count it all joy or predetermine you're going to have joy would be a better translation. You've got to decide. Why does he say predetermined? Because if you wait till you get into trouble, it's going to be hard for you to choose joy. You've got to decide, I don't care what life sends my way. I don't care what the devil does to me. I'm not going to be moved. I'm going to move in joy. I'm going to be on top of it all regardless of what happens to me. And then he adds, when you fall into diverse temptations. The word when in Greek is what you call the subjunctive. It describes something that takes you off guard and by surprise. Well, notice he doesn't say, count it all joy if you fall into diverse temptations. He says, when. And here James, who is a pastor, is being very pastoral, and he says, like it or not, a when moment comes in all of our lives when something takes us off guard. And until we all perfectly walk in the Spirit, we're going to come into one of these when moments in our life when something blindsides us, takes us off guard. And if you've not already decided, I'm going to walk in joy, I'm going to walk in victory, regardless of what happens in my life, when those events take you off guard and blindside you, they will knock you flat unless you've predetermined. I'm going to always be above it all. And let me tell you, the Bible says we have a faith that overcomes the world. You know what my translation is? We have a faith that overrides the system, which means when things go bad, we just go above those things. We have a faith that overrides the system. And here he says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Fall into the Greek word pipto. P-I-P-T-O if you're taking notes. That word pipto means to fall head first and to fall very deep. It describes a person who suddenly trips, falls head first into the bottom of a deep, deep ditch. When he gets up and looks around, he's surrounded by dirt all the way around him everywhere he looks, which means this is not a, a very uh, shallow problem he's describing. He says, when you fall deep into a situation, and to find out what this word means, you got to go to one of the first places where it's used in the New Testament. Jesus used this word pipto, fall into, when he described the story of the Good Samaritan. And the Bible tells us that a man was going from the old Jericho to the new Jericho. And the Bible says he, anybody remember? Fell. He fell what? He fell among thieves. Fell is this same word. And what did the thieves do to him? They stripped him. They beat him. 
and they left him for dead. Very serious problem. Now you carry that into this verse. James says when you fall into issues so serious that you feel like they have beat you, they have stripped you, and they've nearly left you for dead. Now, my friends, when you come under the gun like that, if you've not made a decision, you're going to be the victor regardless of what happens. It will take you down. Your decision, your predetermination, your calculation will determine how you go through anything in life. You know, I made a decision years ago, and it's not because I'm so great, but I'm telling you, my friends, decision is very powerful. And I made a decision that I was going to walk in victory regardless of what I encountered in my life. If you have our autobiography, which is called Unlikely, you'll find it's very unlikely that Denise and I are still here today because we have been through so many things. And just several years ago, an event happened in my life that I'm not free to talk about, it, but it was a legal event that took place in Russia. It was so, so serious that when Denise and I and our team met with our attorneys and I asked what were the chances of my survival, the attorney held up his finger like this across the table. He said, zero. You cannot survive what you're going through. Well, I just made a determination that I would survive what I was going through. And I'm going to tell you, that passed. I'm still here. And everything has never been better than it is right now. But if I had not already made a decision about how I'm going to think and how I'm going to believe, that would have emotionally wrecked me. And not only did I make, need to make a decision for me, I needed to be very consistent in my decision for Denise and for my team that was around me because they were extremely shaken by what they had just heard. I was the only one unshaken. I was completely unmoved, not because I'm Superman, but because I'd made a predetermination. And I want to say one more thing. You should write this down. Remember, emotions are very expensive. And you have to determine how you're going to spend your emotions. And if you spend your emotions fretting about something that you cannot change, it will negatively affect you. Use that same emotion, and it's a lot of emotion when you're being negative. Decide to spend them in a different way. Spend them on being faith-filled. Spend them on being joyous, believing the truth. You've got to decide how you spend your emotions. But now James, the pastor says, my brethren, my comrades, predetermined you're going to have joy even when you fall into situations that beat you, strip you, leave you for dead. And then he adds, divers temptations. The word divers is a Greek word which means variegated. It is the very word used in the Old Testament Septuagint in the book of Genesis to describe Joseph's coat of many colors which means you could translate this many-colored temptations. And here we find a strategy of the enemy. Rather than hit you with exactly the same problem time and time again, which you will learn to master, he adds a little different tent to it every time it shows up so that you can't quite deal with it the way that you did the last time. And he tries to wear you down with multicolored temptations. And this word temptations describes events that come to crush, to devastate, and to destroy. And that's what these readers were experiencing. They had lost everything. They felt their lives were being crushed, devastated, and destroyed. And James, the pastor, says, guys, you've got to choose joy. You've got to make a decision to rise above it all. And then he says in verse 3, knowing this, and in Greek, this is called a participle, which means you would translate it, knowing, 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 never, ever forgetting. So now he's telling something we must know, we must never forget. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Well, religious people read this, and they think that it means the Lord is trying them. But does that say that in that verse? It doesn't say that. And in fact, the word trying can be translated two different ways. It can be translated to try, to test, or to prove. And all of this is important. And notice it is the trying of your what? Faith. 
faith. The test doesn't come until faith has been expressed. And once faith is expressed, the test begins. And the word trying that is used in this verse is the same word you would use to describe the test of a product to see if the product can really live up to its claim. Is that product really all that it says it is? That's exactly what they do with products before they're released into the mass market today. They have to be tested first to see, is this product really all it claims to be? So now, let's use an example. A believer says, I'm going to walk in divine health. He's never had a problem with his health in his life. But the moment he begins to declare he's going to walk in divine health, suddenly he's attacked in his health. He's never had such an attack. What in the world is going on with me? The enemy has come to see if his claim is really going to live up to what he has said. Are you really going to stick with this claim? Are you really going to stay with this confession? Or can I break this product? Can I make you move off of your faith? And the enemy comes to test and to test and to test. Or let's say somebody's never had a financial problem in his life, but just got a revelation about tithing. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to be a tither. God's going to bless me. He begins to declare it and bam, suddenly he's having financial problems like he's never had in his life. The enemy has come to test the product to see if this claim can really live up to what it claims to be. Is this man really going to be a tither like he's claiming? He comes to test the product. But the word trying here can also be translated approving, which means the test is your opportunity to prove, which means when the enemy comes on, it is your opportunity to say, devil, if you want to know what I'm made out of, you're about to find out because this is one man, one woman who's going to survive the test. You're going to find out I'm the real deal. I'm going to stick with what I've confessed. I'm a product that will not break. So the test then becomes your opportunity to prove. Proving your faith means you're going to push back. Everybody say push back. And if you will push back, the rest of the verse says, knowing this, that the trend of your faith worketh, everybody say worketh, patience. The word worketh is the Greek word kata ergerzomai. Kata means down, ergerzomai means to work. It's connected to the word energy. It describes something which kata is released from the top of your head and begins to work through every bit of you from the top all the way through your being, through every cell, through every fiber, all the way to your feet. It's almost like a chemical reaction, which means the moment you decide to push back, your pushback against the enemy triggers almost like a chemical reaction. Something that works in you from the top all the way to your bottom. Something that you need to resist the attack, which this verse calls patience. Well, nobody wants patience. But let me help you. Patience is a bad translation. It's the Greek word hupomene. The word hupomene is a compound of two words. Are you guys getting anything out of this? I'm giving you a lot of Greek. Is that okay? The word hupo is a preposition which means under. For example, if I crawled under this pulpit, you would say, I was hoopo, I'm, I'm under the pulpit. But the second part of the word is meno, M-E-N-O. The word meno means to abide, to stay, to resolve. It's the same word used in Genesis 15 when Jesus says, if you abide in me, refuse to move from me, unflinching, never moving. But when you put these two words together, hupomene, it pictures a person who indeed, hupo, he's under something very heavy. And we know from this text, he's under an attack. The enemy's come to test him to see if he really is serious about what he has confessed or what he has claimed. He's hupo, he is under it, but meno, he has resolved, I don't care what the world or the devil or anybody else says or does, I'm meno, I'm not flinching, I'm not budging, I'm not moving, I may be under it, but I refuse to surrender. And this word hupomene describes the attitude that hangs in there. One scholar has called it staying power. It is the ability to outlast 
and to survive every attack, to refuse to surrender to obstacles and to never give up. And it is absolutely supernatural. And here's what happens. When you come under attack, if you choose just to give up, God will let you give up. He'll let you do that. But if you choose to push back, oh, verse 3 says God joins himself to that person. And supernaturally, almost like a chemical reaction, from the top of his head all the way to the soles of his feet, he is filled, divinely, supernaturally filled as God joins with him with staying power, hang in their power, a divine ability to outlast every attack and never surrender. And in fact, this word hupomene is so important. Here translated patience, better translation would be endurance. That the early church called it the queen of all virtues. The queen of all virtues. Why would they call it the queen of all virtues? Because the early church waited 300 years to be set free from persecution. But they would say to each other, we have to have endurance. It's the queen of all virtues because if you have endurance, it's not a question of if we're going to win. It's just a question of when we're going to win. This is the ability to stay in there, to hang in there, to never surrender. And that's why the early church was able to wait 300 years and never give up. They embraced this as the queen of all virtues. And this verse says, if you'll push back, God will fill you with the divine ability to hang in there in spite of the attack. Verse 4. But let patience, here it is again, the word endurance. Let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Notice he here calls patience a her. Let patience have what? Her perfect work. That's because the word hupomene is feminine. Let patience have her what? Perfect work. The word perfect means complete. Let patience go full term. Which means you're not done until you give birth. Your fight is not finished until you have received your manifestation. If it takes you nine months, if it takes you nine years, if it takes you 19 years, your fight is not finished until you go full term and you give birth and don't stop until you give birth to that promise. Now we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, if any man draw back, and the word draw back is the word hupostello, if any man retreats, if any man recoils from his faith, my soul shall have no pleasure in him, but we are of them that believe to the saving of the soul and not of them that draw back unto perdition. The word perdition is the word apoleo. It describes something stinking and rotten. A good picture would be a piece of meat laid out in the sunshine in the hot summer. You go back to Check on it. Now it's not just stinking. It's filled with maggots. It is just disgusting. And it describes what happens to a person who at one time was moving forward in faith, but who became disappointed and cynical and now rather is moving backward in his faith. He's recoiling. He is reverting. And the writer of Hebrews says that always produces a really stinking spiritual mess in a person's life. You need to understand the word faith is dative. Usually it is dative. That means it's something that's moving forward. Faith is like a bullet that has been shot out of a gun. It always takes you forward. If you'll grab hold of it, it will propel you forward. But if you're moving backward, then you're not moving in faith. But this verse says, let patience, again, hupomenates feminine, have her perfect work, let it go full term. Now write this down. In Hebrews chapter 6, it says we are to imitate them who through, anybody remember? Say it again. Faith and patience inherit the promises of God. Faith and patience. Most people want to talk about faith. They don't want to talk about patience. 
but it says faith and patience. Faith is forward moving. It is an initiator. Patience is feminine. And here we find, just like it takes a man and a woman to give birth to a child, faith believes, faith initiates, that faith is usually sown into the womb of patience. Most people are excited to believe, but my friend, sometimes it takes time before you receive the manifestation, and there are reasons for that. There is a timing to when we receive things. And sometimes we don't quickly receive because we're not ready to receive. It may be that your believing was right, the word from God was right, but you're not spiritually mature enough to receive that manifestation yet. Just last week, Denise and I were listening to Jesse Duplantis, a good friend of ours. He was talking about when he first believed for his airplane. He believed. He received it on that day. He didn't get his first plane until nearly 20 years later. He said, you know what? If God had given me an airplane, I didn't have a hangar. I didn't know how to pay for an airplane. didn't know how to run an airplane. If God had given me that at that moment, I had to come up to a level where I was ready to receive the manifestation. Let me give you another example. Let's say that a woman became pregnant one day and gave birth the next day. What do you think that 24 hours would be like for that precious woman? As her body stretched and moved and her hormones began to change and ay, 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 there's no crib, there's no room, she's not emotionally ready for this, it would be a disaster. It takes a woman nine months to be ready on many levels to receive a child. And just because you have not yet received the manifestation does not mean you did something wrong. You probably believed correct. The question is, are you doing what you have to do to come up to the level to receive that manifestation? You need to let your faith go full term. Just because it's taking time doesn't mean you've done something wrong. Maybe you just need to grow to accommodate what you're believing for. There were many things the Lord spoke to me and Denise when we first got married 40, nearly 43 years ago spoke very clearly to us. We believe for them, and today we're receiving the manifestation. Faith and patience. But let patience go full term. That's what it says in verse 4. That you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Does that sound good? The word perfect is the word telos. It means that you may be mature. How many of you would like to be mature? Number two, entire. What does that mean, entire mean? The word entire is a long Greek word which means literally possessing everything which belongs to you by inheritance. Possessing everything that belongs to you by inheritance. Well, what belongs to you by inheritance? The glory of God, the riches of God, the power of God, prosperity, healing, it all belongs to you. And if you'll stay in faith and not give up, if you'll allow this trait of endurance to work into you, eventually you'll go full term. You'll walk right into real spiritual maturity where you possess what belongs to you to such an extent that you are wanting nothing. No deficits is what the Greek says. Now, James was a pastor, and he knew, just like I know, somebody listening probably was saying, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. This is just a recycled message on faith. We've already heard this. We've already been told this. We've done all of this, and it's not working for us. So tell me, pastor, why isn't it working? Now in verse 5, James gives the best pastoral advice that's ever been given. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. A paraphrase would be, don't ask me, ask God. <laughs> if you're doing everything and it's not working, don't ask me, ask God. And my friends, I will guarantee you, God knows why it's not working. If any man lack wisdom, insight, the word sophos. If any man lack insight about why these things are not working for you, ask of God. Oh, there's a price tag attached to this. Because the Greek says, ask alongside of God. 
which means God just makes one requirement. He'll answer your questions. He'll tell you anything you want to know if you will fulfill this one requirement. Ask of God, the Greek means come right alongside of God, sit right in his lap as close as you can get. And he will tell you what you need to know. And he will tell you other things as well. You see, we usually come to God with one question. He'll answer it, along with a lot of other information, which maybe we don't want to hear. He is an inapproachable light. He is so glorious. And when you come right alongside of God, he will answer your question and he will show you every other thing in your character that you're not aware of is stopping you from receiving your manifestation as that light just penetrates your being. And that's why James says to his church members, you just hop right up in the lap of God. You get as close as you can. He'll answer you. It's like years ago when Denise and I were first starting in the ministry. One day I was feeling very pious. And I said to the Lord, thinking that there was nothing wrong with me, Lord, show me if there's anything in my life and character that is offensive to you. And I heard the Lord say, come close. <laughs> Four hours later, I had seven pages of notes on a legal pad of things that showed up in me when I drew near to the Lord. And if I hadn't drawn near, I would not have been aware of those things. But those were things that needed to be corrected so that I could be what God wanted me to be. And James says, hey, guys, you need to draw near to God who is an inapproachable light. In fact, the Bible says, if you'll do that, ask of God that giveth. He gives to all men how? Liberally and upbraideth not. The God that giveth, that's who he is. Religious people think that God is the God of the clenched fist, that God has the answers. And he taunts us, beg, just beg, just come a little closer, just come a little closer. Oh, you almost got the answer. You almost got it. Now let's just beg a little bit more. That God just taunts us. But this verse says he is the God that giveth, which means he's not the God of the clenched fist. He's the God of the open hand. He just wants us to be in position to receive it. And he will open his hand. He will tell us why our faith is not working. He'll tell us everything we need to know. In fact, this verse says he'll tell us liberally he will not upbraid us, which means he will not chide us for asking. But Wait. Verse 6 then adds, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think. He shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Go back to verse 6. But let him ask in faith. Now, James does something a little odd. Rather than give us a picture of what it looks like to ask in faith, he gives us a picture of what it looks like to not act in faith, nothing wavering. And the word wavering, the Greek word kludunai, it describes a rising wave of the sea that is constantly on the move. Constantly on the move. There's something else. For he that wavereth, by the way, the word wavereth means he who differs. Can't seem to really make up what he believes. Can't seem to really make up what he wants. One day he says he wants one thing. The next day he says he wants something else. Ah, he's just back and forth in what he says and what he believes. Every time he prays, he's changing his mind. But my friend, faith is not like that. Faith is not on the move. Once faith knows what it wants, faith stands still. Hupomene, it doesn't move. It doesn't break. I'm not surrendering my territory. This is what I want. This is what I believe. I'm not moving. But a person that's not in faith is like a wave of the sea. Well, you've been to the sea. This is Alabama. 
Just go down to the coast and watch the, wa the waves. Have you ever tried to catch a wave? You can't catch a wave. It's just through your arms and it's gone. So interesting to watch waves. As suddenly they rise and rise and rise and rise and begin to foam and they look so powerful. And bam, they break. They come tumbling back down into the sea. Then a new wave, which is actually just the old wave, which is just stirred up in a new way. Now it reemerges. It's peaking, 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 peaking. It looks so powerful. And bam, it breaks, falls back into the sea, gets all stirred up again. And here it comes again. It's rising and rising and falling and rising and falling and rising and falling. And here we find that when a person is not acting in faith, number one, they haven't really made up their mind about what they want, but when they pray, they're like a wave of the sea. They sound very powerful. God, this is what I want. Lord, I'm believing this. God sends the answer. But by the time the answer arrives, that person is no longer at that address because he's changed his mind about what he wants. He's just tumbled back into a sea of his confusion. Now he's rethinking things. Here he comes. Okay, now, now, now I know what I want. God sends the answer. The answer comes. Nobody is at that address because the guy's changed his mind again. It's impossible for this man to receive. That's why the following verse says, let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. It's not that the Lord doesn't want to bless him. It's just really hard to hit a moving target. This man doesn't stay anywhere long enough to receive. And in fact, the Greek here, the word wavering describes a habitual vacillation. He's just vacillating, vacillating, vacillating. When I read this verse... I was thinking about my great-grandmother, Faulkner. I had, are you ready for this? I had seven living grandmothers at one time. You know anybody else that had seven living grandmothers? Christmas for us was like geriatric ministry. <laughs> we went from one old house to another old house to another old house to another old house. I had seven living grandmothers. And I had one grandmother, Grandmother Faulkner. She was a wicked, wicked woman. <laughs> Nobody liked her. She loved me. Every Thanksgiving and Christmas, they would set me by her at the table, and she had horrible white slime that moved all around her eyes. And she would look into my eyes, and that thing's moving all over her eyes. And I was terrified of her because I knew of some things that she had done. For example, when she got mad at my Aunt Velma, her daughter, she gave my Aunt Velma's kids, Jerry and Judy, strychnine, trying to kill them because she was mad at her daughter. She lived like a gypsy. When she was a younger woman, <laughs> she opened a nursing home near the 3rd Street Bridge downtown Tulsa because she realized it was so easy to steal from elderly people. She just robbed them blind. She really lived like a gypsy. She moved from hotel to hotel. Back in the 50s and 60s, downtown Tulsa had almost been vacated. It was just derelict. And my grandmother lived in these horrible, derelict hotels. And just to go see her, we'd have to figure out which hotel was she living in this week because she moved all the time. She just moved all the time. When she was 92 years old, she confessed that her fifth husband, she murdered because he had $700 wrapped up in his socks. And when she found out about that, she gave him an overdose of his heart medication and killed him so she could take the money. Well, what are you going to do? She's 92 years old. She's confessing her sin just before she dies. This was my great-grandmother Faulkner. So as she was dying, Here's a woman that could never be caught, always on the move. She said, when I die, cremate me and throw my ashes into the sea so that I will eternally be on the move. <laughs> a wasted life. I think about her every time I read this verse. Because faith stands still. When people 
vacillate and they can't make up their mind. They're just constantly just on the move, on the move, on the move, on the move. And do you know what happens to that person? The verse tells us in verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Well, guess what? The word double-minded is the Greek word disukas. It is a really strange word. The word di means two or double. The word sukas is from psyche. It means the mind or head. You put the two words together. A better translation would be a two-headed man is unstable in all of his ways. Well, let me ask you, what would a two-headed man be? Be a freak, wouldn't it? Just imagine if that door suddenly opened and a man walked in that had two heads and the two heads are arguing where we're going to sit today. One head says, I want to sit over there. The other head says, I want to sit. And they're just pulling back and forth, these heads just arguing back and forth with each other. That would truly be a freak, wouldn't it? Now James tells us in verse 8 that our God who is a God who changes not. He is the same day in, day out. He never changes his mind. He never repents. He's absolutely one-minded. When God sees a believer born by the Spirit of God that can't make up his mind, that pulls back and forth, changing his mind all the time, this is so contrary to who God, the Father, is. That when God sees a believer that just habitually vacillates, it's almost like God says, man, that is the freakish thing that's ever come out of me. How did that thing ever come out of me? That's a two-headed man. And the verse goes on to say, a double-minded or two-headed man is what? Unstable in all his ways. The word ways, the Greek word hodas, it's the word road. Every road of life he travels upon will become unstable. The word unstable carries the idea of a deterioration or a stepping down. I'll give you an example. There's a man in Moscow. Wow. So gifted. But you know, gifts are not everything. Character is more important than gifts. So gifted. He moves from job to job to job to job to job to job to job because he can't make up his mind about what he wants to do. Now when he applies for a job and the people look at his resume, why would anybody want to hire this man? They know he's not going to stay very long. He's going to be on the move pretty fast. His vacillation... His habitual not being able to make up his mind began in one little area. Now it's affecting every road of life that he travels on until this man is now experiencing deterioration in every area of his life. And it's simply because he can't make up his mind. Faith stands still. Now, if you don't receive the manifestation immediately, you may be tempted to change your mind. But remember, you've got to let faith go full term. You've got to let faith go full term. And rather than say, there's something wrong with my faith, you might just need to say, God, what do I need to change to accommodate the promise that I'm believing for? Maybe that you're not waiting on God. God's waiting on you. I want to see one more thing. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man that endured endureth temptation. The word blessed, the Greek word makarios, if you have an amplified Bible, it probably says supremely blessed or happy. It really describes a person that is just ridiculously blessed. Ridiculously blessed is the man that endureth temptation. The word endureth, again, the Greek word hupomene. Blessed, ridiculously happy is the man that endureth he has staying power, hang in their power. He's resolved. I don't care how heavy the temptation is. I'm not bending. I'm not breaking. I'm not moving. I'm going to maintain my promise, maintain my territory. Ridiculously blessed and happy is the man like that who endures temptation, crushing situations for when he is 
tried. A better translation would be when he has proven, when he has proven himself, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. So rather than surrender, he's maintaining his territory. I'm not bending, I'm not breaking, I'm not moving. Hupomene, I will never, never, never move. I'm embracing the queen of all virtues. It's not a question of if, it's just when I'm going to get through this and when. And when he has tried or when he has proven he's the real deal and pressed through, he shall receive, and the Greek word describes payday. Payday comes when you refuse to move. Payday comes. Hebrews 10 calls it a great recompense of reward. It comes. It's payday. And he shall receive the crown of life. <laughs> crown of life? Notice it doesn't say crown after life. It says the crown of life. Why is that important? Because in the athletic world of the first century, athletes went through grueling, grueling moments. But those athletes who refused to budge, refused to flinch, who stayed in the fight and proved themselves, at the end of the contest, when all of their foes are laying flat and they're still standing, the governor of the games would place a crown of laurel leaves on his head and it was a symbolic statement. Because you have won your battle, your bills are paid. We're going to take care of you. Your place is etched in the annals of history as a great champion. Your bills are paid. You'll have glory for the rest of your life. You have now entered into a new status. And when James says... When he has tried, when he has proven himself, he shall receive the crown of life. It literally means when you have learned this, you have learned the key, the key to receiving everything you will ever need for the rest of your life.